Can we pray as we uh, turn our attention to the, to the Word of God? Father, we want to ask that as we look at the Word of God tonight and we worship you by hearing what the Word says, you would um, enlighten our minds, enthuse our spirits, and take the words that are shared and apply them in our hearts just as you see fit in this time and space. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I got born again, a lot of good things happened in my life. I knew that my sins were forgiven. I had experienced that something changed inside of me, that the Spirit of God came and lived in me. I had a peace that I didn't know before. Some of the things that I uh, battled with, I battled with, in fact, some of them just completely went away and some of them I battled with less. Um, I knew that I was in relationship with God. If I could use this language, I knew I was right with God. There's a peace that settled in me. And it was fantastic. It was a good experience. At that time, I decided that I would live my whole life for God. That's how it worked for me. It wasn't a progressive thing. It was like a, at that moment, I decided I'm going to live for Him. I even remember the phrase in, in, in that period that I got born again, that the minister used, we called the ministers in the church I was in at the time, that the minister used uh, and he, in one of the defining sermons, he said, he died for me, so I'll live for him. And so that was very settled in my heart at the time. And so it was overwhelmingly positive, wonderful, life going in a whole new direction. But two other things started happening at this time in my life, which are very normal. They're part of the normal Christian experience, part of the normal Christian life. But people didn't speak about it too much. And so I'm going to mention them because that's not the whole point of my message. But a war started in my life and I started experiencing alienation. Alienation in that I felt like I'm very different from some of the things that are going on around me. And I see some of you are nodding your heads. Maybe you're the Christians. Um, but we don't often talk about this. Something happens inside us that we get this new nature. We, we use language like we become a new creation in Christ. We get born again. Our sins are forgiven. We're in right relationship with God. But what also happens is because we change on the inside, something changes on the inside, a war starts. There's an inner battle that happens. It's a battle between, sometimes we use words like flesh and spirit, between the good we want to do and the right and the desires we feel to please God and then our sinful nature, the desires to live like we've always lived and to be selfish and to do our own things and to not maybe live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so there's this inner war that starts. If you want to read about it in the Bible, it's in Romans chapter 7. It even happened to the Apostle Paul. So this is normal. Because you've changed on the inside, your old self, your sinful self, starts warring with the holy desires of God in your life. That's why you sometimes still sin. For those of you that that still happens to uh, on occasion. Because there's this old thing in you that wants to live selfishly to please yourself. But there's also this nature of God in you that wants to live to please him. I started experiencing alienation from what was happening in the culture and the world around me. Some of my friends, it was very clear, their lives were going in this direction, but I wanted to please God and my life couldn't go in the same direction. And there come, came a sense that sometimes I felt like I was swimming upstream. There was a difference between the reality of heaven that I knew, or the language I want to use tonight is the reality of the kingdom of God, and being part of God's kingdom, part of God's family, and not being part and governed and directed by the world or by the cultures and the times of 
this age, the reality of normal life. See, when you're a Christian, you can't live a normal life. As a Christian, you should feel different from what's going on around you. If you're not experiencing too much alienation, we have special prayer after the service in this place. I wonder what's your experience. Have you experienced the reality of this inner battle and then it's alienation? I remember, uh, how many of you were born in, not born in the 80s? Let me rather do it that way. Anybody not, you, you were alive in the 80s? Okay, a few of us. So most of you were born in after the 80s, like in the 1990s. And on, on it's, huh, it's so nice to be so innocent and naive about the world. But, but one of the realities of life in South Africa in the 80s, you had to be conscripted to do national service. And it was really acute for me there in that space because you're with thousands of other young men who are really not intent on living to please God. And I got born again before I went there, luckily. And then I became intent on wanting to please God. So I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't chew, and I didn't do other things that choose tobacco. Um, Mike would know about such things. Um, But I didn't do the things that were normal. I didn't want to get drunk every weekend. I didn't want to sleep around. I didn't want to do those things. And then, you know, in your immediate circle, there's probably 30 to 50 guys. And then when, you know, you and maybe one other are the only ones, it's like lots of fun. Okay, became guy's mission to try and get me drunk. So you don't drink anything that's not sealed and that can be injected into you. Just don't drink because... And so you live this life which is counter. It's different. wonder what your experiences have been. And so this tension, let's use the word tension to describe these realities that we live in between, living between heaven and let's call it the earth. How do we live in that space? How do we worship in that space? And so the title of my message tonight is whole life worship. I believe whole life worship is one of the ways we engage and that we can live appropriately being citizens of the kingdom of God, but also citizens or people who live in the world. I wanted to say South Africa, but it's too narrow for who's in the room, I guess, because there are some foreigners here. Yeah, yeah. okay. You're welcome. Okay. So citizens of the earth, how do we live in that space? And so our text for tonight and we'll, we're going to read it now, and then I want to talk about it, and we'll come back to it, is in Romans chapter 12. We're going to read the first two verses of Romans 12. I'm going to read in the uh, NIV, New International Version, in that translation. Um, if you read this passage, by the way, in different Bibles, they do it a little bit differently, but it all kind of means the same thing at the end. So I'll try and land that for you. Paul writes in Romans 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so when we want to live according to God's will and and follow God's ways, we start talking about living in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is simply put, put very simplistically, is where God rules, where God's will is done. If you're in your workplace, when you're in campus, when you're in your family and you're doing things God's way, you're busy living according to the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom was Jesus' earliest message. As we read some of the records for us in the gospel, it appears to be one of his earliest messages. He gets baptized, he comes out of the wilderness 
Uh, Matthew 3 verse 2 tells us he, one of his first messages, the things he starts say, saying is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus taught. His main structure that he talked within was about the kingdom of God. Repent simply means to change your mind. Jesus comes and he says, you have to change your mind about how you're living personally. You have to change your mind about what your culture's doing and saying. You have to repent. It's not a swear word. It's just a normal word. Okay? It means change your mind about how you're living. You were living for yourself and going in this way. You need to change your mind and start living God's way according to God's kingdom. Jesus' agenda was always beyond salvation. Salvation is incredibly important, but Jesus didn't just come so that we can be saved. He did. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying he did. But he came for beyond that. He came to establish a kingdom on earth, a kingdom where his ways happen. Sometimes we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's that idea that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is coming to this earth. That's how we pray. Our vision statement here at Hatfield is that we want to see God's kingdom come in hearts, personally in our homes, immediate spaces, and in our beyond spaces. The kingdom of God is very important. Now just quickly, one of the ways that the kingdom of God advances, how do we grow the kingdom in our lives, in our hearts? How do we grow the kingdom in our families, in our homes? How do we grow the kingdom in our beyond spaces, our workspaces, our university campuses, our schools? How do we grow the kingdom? And probably oversimplifying it a little bit, but there's just two steps. Okay, it's called invitation and challenge. Have you heard this before? For those of you who haven't, let me explain quickly. What happens, it appears, is God extends his kingdom in us and through us is he usually invites us. So one of the invitations is you need to repent. You need to come to salvation. You need to start living your life for Christ. And when you respond to the invitation, then you, God usually starts challenging you. Maybe he challenges you to stop doing this or to start doing that. And as the kingdom expands in our lives, perhaps the invitation and challenge aren't about things like leaving sinful ways and starting to live in ways that please God more, in holy ways. Sometimes it's God invites you and says, I want you to get more involved at young adults. So I want you to start taking part in that ministry. Or I want you to start reaching out to the poor. Or I want you to, I want you to, there's this invitation. And then when you respond to the challenge that God brings in that invitation, your life starts changing. Sometimes you start then journeys of faith. Uh, you have to trust God for things you haven't trusted him before. That's how the kingdom of God grows, the invitation and challenge. Um, I like to use the words, same idea, but that God initiates and we respond. God initiates and we respond. For me, that's the basis of faith. God initiates something. God says he wants to do something. He invites me into something. And then I respond. And as I do that, I grow in God. And the world around me starts changing, not only in me, but through me. That's how families change, when God initiates and we respond. So the kingdom of God is the reality that we live in. Let's talk a little bit about God's reality, this kingdom of God, which is actually, the more I read about it, the more I study the scriptures, the longer I live as a Christian, I find that God's kingdom is very, very different from the world around me, from the kingdoms of this world, from the cultures and the patterns and the systems that we experience and that we're confronted with and that we're drawn into every day of our lives. One of the fundamentals of God's kingdom is that it's a kingdom of love. Not Hollywood love. Sorry, no hugging and kissing. 
Well, only if you're married. Um, okay, that went all right. <laughs> okay. It's a kingdom of love. The most often used word there for love is agape, which is a love. It's a way I live where I focused on others and not myself. That's radically different from what we experience every day in the world around us. The world around us, it's all about me, me, and me, and I. Me, myself, and I. But in God's kingdom, it's love where I live for the good of others, primarily not for the good of myself. It's a kingdom that is holy. The original root idea behind the word holy is that we're set apart, that we don't live this way, we live this way. But over time, it's come to be associated that we live in a way that pleases God. We try and live in a way that expresses the character and the nature and the goodness of God. It's a holy kingdom. It's a kingdom with what I want to call true truth. True truth. Because we live in a world where there's many claims to truth. Identity politics tells us this is true and this is going to save the country. Uh, debates on gender and identity. All these kinds of things are presenting what, something that they call to be true. In God's kingdom, it's true truth. Why do I say true truth? Because God knows the way things really are. And when he says it's this way, not that way, it's actually the truth. I find if we engage, strangely on university campuses a lot, but with young people, when you talk about true, what is true, it's very um, relative. It depends how you feel. It depends on, often people will say, well, that might work for you, but it doesn't work for me. Well, now that's okay if it's like toothpaste or something. But when it's about really important stuff in life, like how do you live forever, eternal life, how do you deal with your fundamental flaws and problems, you want true truth. You don't want good ideas or opinions. We believe, well, we know, but we believe that God is the creator. And in God's kingdom, we know that he made the world and everything in it good. And therefore, it's worth looking after. It's a rich world that can provide for many. But we also know that the created order got corrupted because that's the truth that God tells us. The proto-humans, the first humans, Adam and Eve, when God made them, he gave them a mandate to rule and govern over the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, to care for his good creation. But when they turned away from God, creation got affected. We know this, that we live in a good world that's being corrupted, that's part of the reality of God's reality. The other part of God's reality is about us as human beings, that we're made in God's image. And just because I'm made in the image of God, I'm valuable. doesn't matter my background, culture, sin, dysfunction, how good I am or anything. I'm loved because I'm made in the image of God and therefore I have dignity and respect. That's the truth of God's kingdom. But it's also the truth of God's kingdom that we have fallen. Individually, we're also corrupted. We also have sin in our lives. And therefore, I don't live always reflecting the image of God. I don't live in ways that are pleasing to him. Sometimes I'm selfish and I want my own way. On the rare occasion, that happens to all of us in this space. So while people are wonderful and precious and glorious, they're also nasty, mean, and difficult. We have these dual tensions that go in us. This is God's reality. He knows this reality. He speaks to this reality. The other reality is what I want to call tonight the reality of this life of earth, the world we live in, the people we meet every day, not the Christian ones, the other ones, the, the cultures that we 
are so powerful around us to try to define us. Not only ethnic cultures, youth cultures. Um, what do you call this? Generational cultures. Things like that. These are very powerful things, those realities. And as Christians, we're called to understand the times we're living in so that we know how to bring God's kingdom into that space. So I could spend time tonight talking about postmodernism and different isms. I think I could do a reasonable job. Okay, I'm a little rusty. I haven't read on it all that much in the last year or two. But we could look at a lot of things that are going around as popular trends. But if you want to consider the reality of the world, the reality of this age by... Uh, the, the better translation in Romans is probably the reality of this age, the times that we are living in. I want to go kind of what's underlying that. To do that, I want to read a scripture. It's in Second Timothy. Um, we're going to come back to Romans 12, so if you just want to read on the screen, it's completely fine. If you're super quick on your Bible or device, Second Timothy chapter 3. Paul's writing to Timothy in the first century, probably 80, 60-something, as best as we can tell maybe close to the mid-80s, 60s, Paul's writing to, to Timothy and he's describing the world. And he's going to, let me read and then I'll comment as I go because I can't help myself. Okay, uh, 1 Timothy chapter, sorry, not 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. I'm just going to read quickly. Paul writes and he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now quickly, I want to pause there. Last days doesn't mean the end of the world. It sounds like it, but that's not what it means. Okay, let me explain. Paul had this view, and all the first century Christians had this view, that when Jesus came, he established the kingdom of God on earth, particularly when he died and rose and went to heaven. That, in the understanding, was the beginning of the last days. So the last days have been going about 1,900 and something years now. Okay? So if we want to talk about end times, it's probably better to talk about the end of the end. Okay, but we are living in the last days. We have been since Jesus came. That was how Paul understood it. So when you read your last days, don't think about end times or something that's still future for you. Paul's actually, the commentators agree on this, Paul's actually describing his own time, the 8060s. Is that okay? Watch what he says about the 8060s, and then tell me if you think it's familiar. Okay, what's this is what Paul writes. He says, uh, there will be terrible times in the last days. And like even in, he's saying in our time, there'll be terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Interesting. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people, Paul tells Timothy. Sounds familiar, hey? So, 80, first century, 80, 60 something, 21st century, not much has changed. <laughs> because we're made in the image of God, but we're corrupted. People are people. Same things. Let's just round it and say 2,000 years, not much has changed. And it, depending how you view things, that might accelerate. It might get worse and worse. But as much as this was a commentary of the 8060s, it's a commentary for today. Kingdom of God, where it's a kingdom of love and I live for others. The kingdom of this world, I'm a lover of my, so, not me, um, people are lovers of themselves. 
Okay, because it's the, when someone's not a believer, they're unsaved, we should expect them to be lovers of themselves. They're acting according to their nature. <coughs> Sorry, it's not puberty, it's um, just something in my throat. Okay. And so if we look at the kingdom of this age, it's very different from the kingdom of God. Whatever issue you face, human trafficking, poverty, gendered issues, Identity politics, whatever you can think of, the wrongs of this world. If we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, these are the underlying causes. And it's only God that can speak to the people's hearts in this space. We need to address these issues on systemic levels, I understand that. But we also need to address them on heart levels. Okay, just it's both and, not either or, just to be clear. Any example of ill or social justice or wickedness we find is actually rooted here in the human heart, as Paul describes to Timothy. These are two very different kingdoms. These are two very different realities. And we live torn between them often, or sandwiched in the middle of them. There's a clash of realities. And we, it's a tension we need to feel our way through and find out how do we live and express the life of Jesus Christ authentically in these times and places and spaces that we find ourselves in. There's a danger in these spaces that, well, there's sometimes two responses. When we're faced with tensions that we can't resolve, with things that are difficult for us, the one option is that we escape. We, sometimes it's, I'm a believer, this inattention's too much, I'm so tired of people at work thinking I'm weird, on the campus, you know, whatever happens in those spaces. Uh, my young adult friends are all going this way, but I, I want to please God and I'm going this way. It's not just young adult people, it's older people too. It happens for them as well. You know, society's moving this way, but we know that God wants us to move this way. It's hard. And sometimes an option for people is to escape. And they just go, well, I've tried this Christian thing. It's just causing too much conflict. And I'll, I once spoke to a young guy. He said, yeah, I tried this Christian thing. It didn't work for me. I found it very difficult to explain to him that he probably hasn't really engaged with it. Because Christianity is not something you try, it's something you live. Something that changes you fundamentally. Sometimes we come to church and we engage in these tensions and we come to worship just to escape. Because I just need a safe space with God. And this is true, you want to connect with God. You want to experience praise and worship like we do here every Sunday and like we're going to in a few minutes. Because it strengthens you, you connect with God, you connect with true truth. You engage with real reality and then it helps me to go and engage with what I find around me in those spaces from a place of truth. It's like a, um, it's not just this, but it can be like an anchor in my soul. It's much more than that, but it can be like that. So I don't come to worship to escape. The other option when I'm faced with tensions and the realities of these two worlds is instead of to escape is to engage. Say, God, I see evil. I see corruption. That's a good word in South Africa, corruption. I see state capture. I see these things. Do I just disengage or do I go, but surely the kingdom of God can come here. Surely I can engage. Surely I can find out how, what God wants me to do, how I can live in this space and place in a way that pleases and honors God. And so I would obviously encourage you tonight to rather choose to engage than to escape. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12. Because Paul gives us a way here to Engage appropriately. Let's read it again and then I just want to comment on three big ideas. There's a lot more in this passage, obviously, than what I'm going to share now, but just three 
quick ideas on Romans 12. Paul writes, starts with therefore, which basically saying, given everything that I've said so far in the book, let's talk a little bit about that reality. I'll, I do actually read and not just talk all the time. I'll read it now. Therefore, first chapter, 11 chapters in the book of Romans, what's Paul dealt with? He's dealt with how are we all sinners and why does that happen? How does God save us? How do we deal with the reality of this ongoing war that we face? Why did God choose Israel and why did he bring the Gentiles in and how did he show mercy and, and, and all these big ideas. There's another idea that's also going on. We know that in the church at Rome, it might not be Paul's main reason for writing the book of Romans, but it's definitely one of the reasons he wrote it, is that in the church of Rome, there were racial tensions. The Jews and the Gentiles were finding it difficult to live together in one church, in one body of Christ. Because what had happened is, church in Rome started and then the Roman emperor kicked all the Jews out of Rome because that's what Roman emperors could do. They expelled the Jews, that's the polite word. Okay? Expelled the Jews out of Rome. For probably four or five years, there were no Jews, not even Jewish Christians allowed into Rome. But the church in Rome kept growing and so the Gentiles means non-Jewish people. They were probably Romans and Greeks and uh, different kinds of nationalities all under this umbrella. They grew and the church in Rome became strong and they developed their leadership. And then that emperor died and so the Jews were allowed back into Rome. That's how it worked if you're an emperor. When you died, everything you said just went, okay. So the Jews came back and they kind of wanted the old status and station in the church and there was this tension about what's going on and who's in charge now and how do we as Jewish people, non, uh, as Jewish people and non-Jewish people, how are we going to live together? And, Paul, and one was, some were saying, no, but you luck really bad. And they're going, no, but you're even worse. And Paul says, chapter three, all have sinned. So let's start the discussion about who's better at the foot of the cross. We've all sinned. And for all of us, Jews and Gentiles, and fallen short to the glory of God. So therefore, Paul writes, even though this church that's got real realities, real tensions that they're dealing with, he writes, and he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm proposing tonight that the way we resolve this tension is that we live whole life worship. What do I mean by whole life worship? Particularly three things. True and proper worship is the NIV phrase at the end of verse one. I propose the following. Number one, that we start with our real God. Paul writes and he says, in the view of God's mercy, the Jews aren't better, the Gentiles are better. What counts is God's mercy. In the view that we were all in trouble with God, we'd all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. In the view of God's mercy. When we engage with heaven and earth coming together, when we engage with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, we start with God. I don't start with God, I don't start with God, why is there this issue and what's the Christian view and God, what you can, I start with, not the issue, I start with God, particularly the mercy of God. When I faced with a challenge, personal or public, no matter what the scale, I start with the reality of God. I allow the reality of God's kingdom to be my primary perspective. If I'm facing a personal challenge, God, what do you say? Not God, where are you? God, what do you say about this reality? I start with God. Paul writes, he says, in the view of God's mercy, we start there. Secondly, 
the appropriate response to God and to his mercy is we offer our bodies. The NIV uses the language that says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Just quickly. Often today, we tend to think in very compartmentalized ways. We, for example, we read the New Testament and we read body, soul, and spirit. And the general discussion is we've got, we're made up of three parts, okay? It's not real parts, it's like sections. Body, soul, and spirit. And so we tend to draw quite clear distinctions between those. That's not a first century way of thinking. Paul never thought that way. We sometimes think Christianity is about our spirit and our soul, and let this body frack, you know, let it die. Okay, that's not a first century way. So when Paul writes here about body, he actually means your whole being. He doesn't just mean uh, skin and bones, and hopefully some muscle. Okay, he doesn't just mean that. He means your whole being. So when it says uh, present your body as a living sacrifice, he means present your whole life. Everything you are, every aspect of who you are. Okay, your mind, your will, your emotions, the physical body and your spirit, everything, give that to God as a living sacrifice. Probably in the Greek, the best way would be to give, this, give your body to God, alive, holy, and pleasing. Now, there's a contradiction here. The words living sacrifice. Most sacrifices, what's the common thing about them? I know you've never, never done sacrifices, but as you've heard, what's the common thing about sacrifices? They die and are dead. Okay, so in the Old Testament system, you would take an animal um, and you would, depending on what sacrifice you're doing, he's not an animal, he's an illustration, you'd lay your hands on the animal and you would confess your sin and then you would take the sharpest knife you could find and you would saw through its neck to kill it. Then the animal dies in your place. That's really how it worked, okay? It wasn't um, genteel. They understood something about the reality of sin that leads to death. Okay. But when God speaks to us, he says, I don't want to substitute sacrifice. I don't want an animal in your place. You have to personally engage. Living sacrifice means you have to personally engage with your life. Don't go and lie down and be, I'm a sacrifice on the altar of God. It's a living, active Sacrifice, an alive sacrifice, and a sacrifice that takes its whole life and says, I want to live this life to please God. No substitute. It's your personal involvement that God wants. He wants your active participation. Paul writes and he says, this is true and proper worship. When worship permeates your whole life, when it permeates every aspect of and every space where you find yourself in, as on Monday, on, as on Sunday, as on Tuesday, as on Sunday, Sunday in church meaning, okay? Every aspect of your life, that's whole life worship, true and proper worship. We might talk a little bit more about verse two next week, but the third aspect of living a whole life worship is that you don't conform, you transform. Worship means when I don't conform to the culture around me, when I don't conform to racial stereotypes, when I don't conform to cultural stereotypes, when I don't conform to expectations and normal patterns of life, but I decide that the mechanism is by renewing my mind, by changing the way I view life and the world, that I'm not going to view the world as normal, I'm going to view God's kingdom as normal or as primary. I'm not going to 
regard this as the primary benchmark of success, three cars, two houses, and children that study overseas. I'm, not, I'm going to renew my mind about that. I'm not going to conform to that pattern. I'm going to transform. And when I decide to transform, worship team, if you can join me, please. Uh, not me. I'd rather go on the stage. Um, <laughs> when I decide to live according to God's pattern, then I can experience transformation in my heart. I can experience transformation in my home. And I can trans- experience transformation in the world around me. And as we get ready to worship, I want to read the same passage, but I want to read it out of a different uh, version. It's called the Message Version. You might have heard of it. Um, Message Version is just, I want to explain because it's important for reading this part. It's what, what we call a free translation. In other words, when Eugene Peterson wrote this, he wanted to translate the ideas. Now, Eugene Peterson's a good scholar, so he worked from the original Greek. How many of you can do that? Okay, he read the Greek, and then he said, I think this is the idea. And so he writes Romans, 1 and 2, Romans 12, 1 and 2 for us, but he wants to land what he thinks is the idea about what Paul was saying. Okay. And it's, I think it's, so it's a bit like a commentary on Romans 1 and 2, actually, that Paul writes here. And I think it's helpful. Is that okay? I don't think it's inspired. I think it's helpful. So I want to read it. It will come up on the screen. Uh, message reads like this. It says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Very important. This is not about self-effort. This is about God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. What's that? You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work, you're walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you. Sorry, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. He goes on and he says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Indeed, fix your attention on God. God first. Okay, we start with God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognizing what he wants from you and be quickly to respond. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. And so we're going to worship now through music and song. It's one of the ways we worship. We worship through work. We worship through being good friends. We worship by loving others unselfishly. We worship in many ways. That's whole life worship. When my whole life is dedicated to God. But we're going to worship through music and song now. So that this purpose, we want to come to the place where we can say, God, is there more of my life that needs to be put on the altar? So that I can be a better living sacrifice. Is there... More of me that you want to come truly alive, that you want to move from immaturity to maturity. Is there more of me that you want to not conform, but to transform? So if I can invite you to stand, I'm going to pray. And so the invitation is, let's worship in this space where it's conducive to worship. So that we can worship Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then we can worship in music and song again at other times and spaces too. Father, we want to start this week, but our lives, we always want to come back to this place where we start with you. But we want to offer now ourselves alive, holy, set apart, so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. And as we come into this space, Lord, we, we love you, and we allow you to love us back as we sing 
and engage with these songs, won't you come by your Holy Spirit and help us? Empower us to overcome sin. Empower us to overcome our insecurities and our self-doubt and even our sinful weaknesses so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you, that we can give you true and proper worship with our whole lives. Amen.